Hello, and welcome to the podcast of Organic BC, a nonprofit organization that celebrates, champions, and advocates for the organic sector and broader organic community in British Columbia. Learn more at organicbc.org. My name's Jordan Marr. I'm a BC-based organic farmer, and I'm the host of this podcast. In late 2020, in light of uncertainty caused by the pandemic, Organic BC developed an alternative to its regular in-person annual conference. The conference was mostly online, and its centerpiece was a 40-episode podcast that it produced for conference ticket holders. Our intention was to eventually make these episodes available for free to the public, and what you're about to hear is one of those episodes. Our plan is to release them all on this podcast feed over the next few months. Meanwhile, the Organic BC Conference Committee is busy planning your next conference, which will, once again, take place in person. But it's also going to include a smaller slate of new podcast episodes to be released in January. I'll provide more info about all of that throughout the fall, but for now, I hope you enjoy this episode from the 2021 conference podcast. Oh, and by the way, we also incorporated the annual conference trade show into this podcast series, so we may or may not be taking a break in the middle of this episode for a short trip to that trade show. You'll know what I mean if you hear it. Okay, talk to you at the end, everybody. This episode features guest interviewer Molly Thurston's interview with David Granitstein. Molly is a horticulturalist, agrologist, and co-owner of Claremont Ranch Organics, an organic orchard in Lake Country, BC. David is a recently retired professor emeritus at Washington State University. David served as a sustainable agriculture specialist for over two decades with a focus on orchard management. Their conversation focuses on orchard floor management, orchard replant challenges and solutions, and David's take on the future of the organic tree fruit industry in North America. We'll also take another trip to the conference trade show to learn about the Summerland and Agassiz Research Stations, which are projects of Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hi, I'm David Granitstein. I live in Wenatchee, Washington, where I'm a retired professor with Washington State University. I spent the last 30-some years working on sustainable agriculture with a heavy focus on organic systems and tree fruit production. So, hi, David. I'm really pleased uh, to have you join me today for this conversation uh, about organic orchards. And I wanted to start off just with asking you a couple questions about yourself and wondered if you could tell me a bit about the background that you have, uh, both academically and personally, that brought you into this field. Sure, Molly. I don't come from a farm background, as a, certainly a lot of people in agriculture today, that's the case. But I ended up in college studying, uh, at that time, what was called natural resources. I guess you'd probably call it environmental science today, within a college of agriculture. And so it introduced me to the important interface between agriculture and environment. That, that's really where I first made that connection. And that's kind of been the theme of my work over the years. At that time, this was the, I would say the early 70s, there were really two uh, two ideas articulated around that. One being IPM, which was pretty young at that time, integrated pest management, and the other organic farming, which was even more, uh, I would say, obscure, definitely not mainstream, definitely not something accepted whatsoever in, in the academic community. It was a pariah term. As we've seen it change over the years, obviously uh, the, the world has moved on from there. But at, at that time, that's, those were sort of two, two visions. 
So I, I got my start more in the organic farming world. I wasn't really a pest management person. And over time, uh, the concept of sustainability emerged, and that's one that I, I found a home in because it made a lot of sense to me. It embraced lots of different strategies and ideas for improving our food production. And uh, somehow it, it, it just made a lot of uh, intuitive sense as to how we should be moving forward. So I studied environmental science first, then I went back and I studied soils. I worked on an organic farm for about seven or eight years. I, I've worked overseas. I've worked in Minnesota for an NGO, helping farmers improve their practices. And then most of my career was at Washington State University as a sustainable agriculture specialist within the extension system based in Wenatchee at the Tree Fruit Research and Extension Center and part of the Center for Sustaining Agriculture and Natural Resources. So a lot of different affiliations, you could say. Excellent. Thank you. And obviously, Washington State University is a huge player in the or in the orchard uh, research and extension realm, and so, what sort of work did you do with the Sustainable Agriculture Center that related specifically to orchards? I ended up in Wenatchee for a couple of reasons. One being I was familiar with this part of the state; I had lived near here for many years, and secondly. I felt it was important. Our center was brand new when I joined it, and I was the first full-time person hired. So I felt we needed to get out of Pullman, which is way over on the Idaho border, very much wheat-centric. And I felt like a lot of the issues around sustainability were much more in the central Washington area, where you had this intensive irrigated agriculture, a lot of pesticide issues at the time, and not very far away, you had the urban populations. So there was a lot of interaction between groups and, and interests uh, in those two places. And it seemed like Wenatchee uh, was well located to try to understand that and bridge some of those gaps and, and move some of these issues forward. Since I was in Wenatchee, of course, I became exposed to the orchard world. It wasn't something I knew a whole lot of about prior to that. And because at the time and still today, uh, orchards, tree fruit, are by far the largest component of organic agriculture in the state. I got more and more involved in organic tree fruit as time went on. That was a natural because I already had the organic connection. So I had to learn tree fruit systems, and I took my soils background intended to focus on orchard floor, understory soils, those kinds of issues. And I'd love to talk now a little bit about some of that work in orchard floor management. And I, I've certainly seen over the years that you've, you've been involved in working with both uh, cover crops in the orchard as well as um, replant systems and weeds. I wondered if we could delve into those topics, um, perhaps starting off with uh, the cover crop systems. What sort of work did you do in cover crops for orchard floor management? pertaining to agri organic agriculture? One of the first projects I got involved in was just asking the question, could we grow something other than a perennial grass in the alley that would add more functional diversity or more function to the orchard system without creating more problems? We tested a number of cover crop mixes. At the time, there had been 
a fair amount of work in California orchards on these diverse mixes to try to attract beneficials and whatnot for biocontrol benefits. So I've played around with, with some of that for a number of years. And also, given my background, having worked with legume cover crops previously, I was wondering, could we incorporate legumes as part of that strategy and produce a certain portion of the, nit the nitrogen that the trees needed within the orchard and therefore reduce our need for external inputs? Um, that made sense, particularly for the organic growers who uh, had a fairly, you know, their options for nitrogen were pretty expensive at the time, probably still are today. So the idea of growing the some of the nitrogen did make sense. So we played around with that. We saw you know, some some benefits. I wouldn't say there were any really big breakthroughs in that in some of the earlier work. Then later on, I tried various strategies, uh, and a lot of this was done in collaboration. So I'll, I'll talk about I as well as we. It was generally a team effort of sorts. The question became, could we do something in the tree row uh, versus just trying to keep a bare soil, which means that you know, you've know you created a vacuum that nature is trying to fill all the time. Could we put something in that tree row, some plant that would be a, either neutral or a benefit to the ecosystem and reduce this whole struggle with trying to continually control weeds? So we played around with the living mulch idea in the tree row and had some success, particularly with uh, white clover you know, hitting a number of the buttons that we were trying to, but ultimately uh, it's fatal flaw. And most of these things have a fatal flaw and you have to decide, you know, is, is it fatal, too fatal for you to use or you can just live with it? In this case, it was the rodents. So it turns out I had found a wildlife uh, ecology study on feeding preferences of voles. And the top feeding preference was white clover. Well, <laughs> Sure enough, we planted white clover, and the voles devoured it over the winter. Fortunately, they didn't touch the trees. They liked the clover even more than the trees, but there was no clover left. But it was certainly a sign that uh, we had elevated the risk of tree damage from rodents. So that kind of finished off white clover, which was too bad because it, it was terrific for weed control. It actually used less water than bare ground. It did fix nitrogen, and we could see the nitrogen increase in the trees, it improved some of the soil quality, but the rodents was the fatal flaw. So we had to move on from there. We tried some other things. I think ultimately came to the conclusion that particularly in young plantings, uh, this strategy wasn't going to work. The competition was just too intense. And so unfortunately, I never had a real chance to come back around and say, well, what if we've got a well-established orchard and we kind of ease into this could we find something that, that would work and, and not have the kind of problems we saw with the white clover? I think a few growers are doing that where once the trees are established well, they may just let some of the uh, existing vegetation, whatever plants tend to establish themselves, come on in. They mow it so they keep the height down, the competition down, the habitat for rodents down. But eventually, it forms a bit of its own cover that is self-maintaining. It doesn't take a lot of work. So I, I, I still think there's opportunities to do more in that. But because of my early experience, it moved me back from the tree row into the alley, back to that legume question. And then I did a number of experiments with 
different legume species, mostly just single species because we were just trying to understand what was going on. Planted in the alley, we did some of that using direct seeding, no-till, so we wouldn't have to use herbicides and take the grass out, and, and we showed we could actually do that, some, some benefits rather than having to uh, you know, turn up to disturb the soil. And we, we could definitely supply a portion of the, uh, the tree's nitrogen. I never had a trial run long enough to actually try to say, well, how much could that be? But based on the, the final trials I did in which an alfalfa planted in the alley could generate 100, 150 pounds of nitrogen in a season using a mow and blow system, and that's more than the trees need. So, and then we did some other work actually using uh, uh, isotopes of nitrogen, and we, and we could establish that yes, indeed, the nitrogen in, in the legume was ending up in the trees. So we kind of we have the pieces there to say yes, this kind of a system can work. That's really exciting because certainly many of our growers have relied heavily on feather meal applications, blood meal applications, which, as you mentioned, are very expensive. And so the idea of growing something in the alleyway and then being able to apply that to your trees uh, for being able to give them the nitrogen they need is is quite something. Could you explain a little bit more what the mow and blow system is, David? Sure. It's it's just simply instead of mowing your alley and letting the vegetation, the clippings drop right there in the alley, you have a mower, either one you adapt or a number of companies make them now specifically to do this. They have a side delivery chute and it blows those clippings onto the tree row. And, and I've seen mowers that put a beautiful, really even layer right over the tree row. That's what you want. You don't want it ideally bunched up. You want it kind of very thin and, and, and even over the tree row. And that's something that you can do or not do depending on your goal. So for example, with the legume study, you know, the issues around timing of nitrogen are still out there to be ironed out, I feel. And it could be that perhaps your first mowings in the season, you're doing mow and blow, but as you get closer to harvest, you you stop and you leave the clippings in the alley so you don't put nitrogen on the trees when you don't want it. So that the timing issue is something that can be managed, and that's why I kind of moved away from doing it in the tree row where that's much harder because those roots are interacting with the trees. They're getting nitrogen all the time, whether you want it or not. When you're out in the alley, you don't have that problem so much. And at the same time, you're, you're creating a bit of a mulch layer in that tree row, which our other studies have shown to be very beneficial, but it's extremely thin. And so the risk for rodents is, is virtually non-existent. How thin is that mulch layer potentially? Is that an inch or a couple inches of material? No, because you can put it on that thick, but within a short period of time, it's like paper mache. It's very, very, it's like a piece of cardboard almost. So is it uh, that it's compacting down with the irrigation and breaking down very quickly? Yep, exactly. And exactly. soil organisms are pulling it into the soil. It's, you know, it's, it's pretty active stuff. It really feeds that active carbon part of the system, and that's what's so nice about it. Excellent. And what are some of the additional benefits that you have seen with this sort of mulching in orchards? Well, we've seen... Uh, Fairly consistently, never 100%, but very high percentage, increased 
either one or, or all of these, uh, increased tree growth, and we typically would measure that by the trunk uh, cross-sectional area, increased fruit yield, and increased fruit size. Those are the three positives we generally have seen. We've seen uh, better moisture retention. We reduced water use, and in one orchard where we modern, uh, monitored it with actually with water meters over the season, 20 to 25% was pretty significant. Uh, we've seen the ability to reduce fertilizer inputs, obviously, depending on what is in that vegetation you're doing. And uh, we've seen soil, some number of the soil quality parameters improve. Excellent. And with those soil quality parameters, is that increases in organic matter in soil tilth itself? Yeah, you see the structure definitely improves and water infiltration is a, is a nice indicator of some of that. Uh, biology, some of the biological indicators will go up with it. And over time, the organic matter, you might have to look at some of the, like the active organic matter to pick it up early on versus the total organic matter. You mentioned alfalfa is one of the species uh, that could be used in the mow and blow system. Are there other preferential species for the Pacific Northwest? Well, I, I wouldn't say we've been exhaustive in, enough on this to, to say here's the species to use or the variety. Um, I would say that alfalfa looked pretty robust, actually, in the in the one the the last experiment I was doing. We asked the question, well, in our previous trials, we had to choose one alfalfa because we only had room for one variety or one type. It turns out there's th at least three types of alfalfa, and then within the types, that, like there's a forage type, there's a, a dryland type, there's a grazing type, uh, and within any of those, then there's different cultivars or varieties. So, you know, the germplasm diversity is huge. And to try to base a conclusion off of one variety that you had to sort of pick out of a hat, your best guess, then you don't really know what's out there as far as how that species might perform. So that's where I think there's a lot left to learn. So alfalfa did well in general. Uh, Bridgefoot trefoil, Lotus corniculata, is the scientific name, is another one. It's a forged legume that's more common, I would say, in the eastern U.S., kind of humid regions, more acidic soils, heavier soils. But it turns out it does extremely well in our irrigated western soils. And Utah State University has actually started a breeding program on it, which is interesting. But a friend of mine, we had, let me back up, we had uh, experimented with it on a number of occasions, partly as, as a uh, Insectary crop, it was part of some of these mixes that I tried early on, but it did well. And in some cases, it actually migrated from the alley and completely filled the tree row and became a self-sustaining cover to the extent that it climbed up over the sprinklers and caused problems. But it, it was pretty well adapted to the orchard. And a friend of mine started to uh, do some similar trials. And because they were doing this breeding, she's in Utah, she thought, well, let's include the trefoil. And it turned out that the trefoil was really quite unique. She didn't have other legumes that she compared it to, but uh, what she found in that trial, this was with peaches, organic peaches, was that if you had trefoil in the alley instead of grass, it didn't matter what you did in the tree row as far as weed control. 
those trees grew better. And there appeared to be some very clear uh, root interactions below ground between the trees and this trefoil. And they picked some of that up with, with root coring. So there's the kind of thing where we just, we just don't know enough to truly understand what's going on there and to be able to uh, take advantage of some of those opportunities. But I, I feel pretty strongly they're out there and there's, there's more work that needs to be done. That is super interesting. As a personal aside, when I took organic uh, pasture management, trefoil was certainly one of my favorite crops to look at in Ontario. <laughs> so that's really neat. Thank you for sharing that. All right, so it's time for another trip to the CUABC conference trade show. And this time, I'll be talking to Dr. Rashid El-Hafid, who is a director of research development and technology transfer for two British Columbia research stations overseen by Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada. Rashid, thanks a lot for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Maybe we can start with the simple. Rashid, could you just tell me a little bit about these research stations and, um, you know, their, their, their kind of their, their intended purpose? Uh, absolutely. Um, so, uh, yeah, we have uh, in BC, we have two research centers one in Agassiz and the other one in Summerland. And they were located in completely different environments, in different uh, geographic locations, with different cropping systems, with different uh, issues altogether. That's why we decided to have two research centers to address those different challenges for the agriculture and agri-food industry. Rashid, I imagine among the two stations, you have uh, quite a, a wide breadth of expertise at your disposal. That's a very good question. In fact, we have over uh, 50 scientists with different disciplines. And those disciplines, they span um, various um, areas from breeding, genomics, to pest management, to crop management and soil management practices. And we also includes post-harvest and storage but also agri-food, value-added product development and processing. But we, in addition to that, we also have really top-notch infrastructure and technologies to uh, enable our scientists to do uh, the great work that they do. But additionally, we also draw on the expertise from other 18 federal research centers and farms across Canada. We also uh, partner with industry associations, with uh, academia, other level of government, but also with various national and international organizations to harvest the world for new ideas and expertise and resources uh, to continue to support the agriculture and agri-food industry. It seems to me that your colleagues are always willing to hear from farmers or from industry associations about requests for research focus. Is that not correct? It is absolutely correct. We exist here to serve uh, the industry. So uh, we need to know the, the real challenges that facing the industry and how we can help them. And this is, is going to be a collaborative work between our scientists and our industries. So we need to work together on this. Well, if folks want to engage with the incredible work these stations are doing, uh, probably the best way is just to Google them. Summerland Research Station or Agassiz Research Station. Uh, you'll come up with links. But of course, we will share some links in the notes for this uh, this episode. So 
Dr. Rashid Al-Hafid, I really want to thank you for taking the time to, to tell us about, um, about these research stations and, and about your work. It's, it's really interesting, and I know it provides a lot of value for my colleagues in the industry. Uh, my pleasure, and uh, again, uh, we are here to help uh, our, uh, our partners in the farming community, but also in the agri-food uh, businesses as well. So uh, we are open to uh, collaboration. Please uh, reach out to us if uh, you need uh, any help, and uh, together we can be stronger. super interesting. As a personal aside, when I took organic uh, pasture management, tree foil was certainly one of my favorite crops to look at in Ontario. <laughs> so that's really neat. Thank you for sharing that. Um, can I circle back to just asking about in an established orchard where you have a predominantly perennial grass cover, would you say that you could overseed or drill in some of these legume species like a trefoil or an alfalfa and would they be competitive enough for growers to get some benefit of adding a legume? Yes, we, we tried uh, one experiment where we were using four different legumes and for each one we, we had them either, they were all direct seeded, either with or without herbicide suppression of the grass. So we wanted to know how big a difference that would make and whether without the suppression, as you might do in a, an organic setting, uh, could the direct seeding work? And the answer is yes. The stand wasn't as good without the herbicide, but it was still there and it improved over time. The, 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 the uh, legumes, as they got established, became more competitive. So yes, it, it's definitely possible to do that. I think the biggest issue is shade. And that's where, as we're moving to more and more high-density orchards, very narrow canopies, more light hitting the orchard floor, this type of practice is going to be more possible because a number of these species, all these forage species, they're, they're not adapted to shade. They grow out in the full sun. So it's kind of tough to get them to hang in there over time in the shade. That's a really good point. Yes, there is certainly been the experience of having the larger canopies where things definitely shade out in the bottom and we don't have much grass cover so that's an interesting thought as we change the canopy architecture that we potentially also change the orchard floor species i wonder david if we could talk a little bit about weed control uh, I, I really love this idea of using um, competition in the orchard. However, we still have some orchardists who feel that a nice, clean weed strip is um, the right way to go. What, what would you say to those growers? Well, certainly, depending on the, the status of your trees, if they're well-established, they can tolerate some competition. So, it, you know, in a young orchard, I think that's true. In an older orchard, the evidence is fairly clear that it's less true. Um, I would say that if, if you think about soil health, which is certainly on a lot of people's minds these days, 
probably the worst situation is a soil devoid of living roots. And as we are planting these dwarfing trees, M9, the, the amount of root system they produced is really small. So if you have hardly any roots from the tree and no roots from any other plant, you're going to struggle with soil health because you're not, you don't have the, the active carbon drivers to keep that soil going unless you're pouring stuff into it all the time, which you don't really want to have to do. So, you know, plants can be your friends in that way in terms of helping the soil as long as you understand the balance in terms of competition with the trees. So that, that's what I would say is that, you know, that vacuum that's out there, the bare soil, that's really, our NRCS, our Natural Resources Conservation Service, has the four principles of soil health in there. Keep it covered, keep active roots as much of the year as possible, uh, diversify the crops that are in there, and there's one more, oh, just don't disturb it. So those are kind of the four principles, and having that bare strip violates probably three of them. Definitely. So it sounds as though we may be doing more damage than good. Should we be looking at these organic herbicides, acetic acids, et cetera, to keep that weed strip bare? What do you think about that? Well, that's the thing. None of this is necessarily all or nothing. So we can still control weeds, but we could do mow and blow and have some mulch over the surface, which is adding active carbon and protecting that surface. There's going to be weed escapes, so then how do we control those weeds? It could be an organic herbicide is the right solution, for example. Great. And what if we flip over to a replant situation? So in this case, I perhaps, you know, young, I'm looking at my own replant from the window here, and I've just put in um, about an acre of apples uh, planted at 10 foot by 2 foot spacing, and um, I've used some of the Cornell rootstocks in this case, and I'm looking at that thinking, oh boy, this is going to be a lot of hand weeding to keep the competition down. Now, I haven't planted my alleyways yet. So, any any thoughts on what uh, might be a, a solution or, or a way to set myself up for less work, but also as much benefit for my soil as possible? Well, you could look at a wood chip mulch. You know, it depends on what your weed situation is going into it, but you can definitely get some benefit there. The trees will benefit from that. If you have a lot of perennial weeds, particularly perennial grasses, the mulch will make it worse, the wood chips. So that's oh, a, I do. a struggle there. <laughs> yeah. One thing, this is kind of one of those interesting little things you learn over time. We had one, one grower that we worked with with a big field experiment, and the orchards, I think both orchards had pretty severe quackgrass infestation in the tree row. So we wanted to use the wood chip mulch, but we knew if we just put it on top of the quackgrass that it would be terrible. So he had found some very inexpensive, like a cardboard type mulch that roll and rolls that we put out and then put the wood chips on top of it, thinking it would block the quackgrass, at least for a bit, which it did and we get some of the other benefits of the system. Well, it turned out that the rodents, the voles, would come over to the edge of that tree row. They, they'd check out the wood chips, which our experience had been, they don't like wood chips, but they'd say, oh, I don't need to mess with wood chips. I'll just go right under this cardboard. And they literally went right to the trunk and, and started chewing on the trees. So we went, okay, that's not gonna work. 
Turned out uh, a colleague of mine at, in Oregon was working with wood chips and blueberries, and they saw some of the same issues. So then they kind of flipped it around. Because the black fabric was part of their trial, they put wood chips down in the fabric on top of the wood chips. Not only did it wipe out all the weeds, but the rodents were zero problem. So little things like that can make a huge difference. That definitely would have been a very hard lesson to learn with the cardboard, yet uh, how interesting to put the chips and the fabric on top. So just a, like a regular landscape-type fabric was used in this case? Exactly. And, and, you know, when we use the landscape fabric by itself, the rodent problems are really, really severe. However, I've also worked with growers where it has been extremely effective on controlling quackgrass with no herbicides. You've got to look out for the where the seams are and right around the trunks. But in general, it really, really knocks it back. Some growers open it up in the winter. That helps. But during the growing, growing season, the, the rodents can still be a huge problem under the fabric. So if you combine those two, for example, and, and you've got to look at cost, obviously. But typically, you know, we were putting on wood chips four to six inch kind of depth to try to get some weed control. Um, but if you couple it with a fabric, you don't need that much wood chip, perhaps. Maybe an inch is plenty, and you're going to get a lot of all the, the positives of the wood chip without the rodent issue on the fabric. The fabric's over the top, and you have no weeds. So that's kind of an interesting combo that I haven't personally tried, but the blueberry people have been, have been looking at that. Oh, that's super interesting. Thank you. I'll keep that one in mind. Uh, when talking about replant um, as well, you've done a fair bit of work with replant disease. And we're right now in a cycle where a lot of our organic orchards in British Columbia are, are reaching maturation. And we're certainly looking at um, in apples, moving to new varieties, new rootstock technology. And replant is an issue that's uh, showing up in our area. Uh, what have, what kind of work have you done in this area, and, and what are some of the results that you've found? I've had the, the pleasure to work extensively with Mark Mazzola with the USDA here in Wenatchee. He was hired not too long after I came to, he's a plant pathologist and soil ecologist, to focus specifically on methyl bromide alternatives for replants, because at the time methyl bromide was pretty common. There was an effort for the phase out of it due to atmospheric issues. And so he was you know, hired as part of a nationwide effort on all different crops to try to find alternatives. So he and I worked together for many years. Eventually, he kind of settled on uh, the brassica seed meal combination and he tested different species and found that single species didn't do the job because replant is always a host of organisms. It's never one. And, and one seed meal didn't necessarily take care of everything. So he settled on this combination seed meal, the, uh, uh, and I can never remember, Synapsis alba and Brassica ginsea. And whether it's yellow yellow mustard and white mustard, I, I people call them different <laughs> things. But those are the species. And so it's the seed meal after the oil is squeezed out, the leftover, that material is combined and put on as a soil amendment pre-plant incorporated and in his, uh, his four-year trial, that was one of the, the last ones he did in the field, they found that um, the seed meal exceeded tree growth and fruit yield of the fumigated. 
and which exceeded the control by, by a lot. So that was pretty exciting to see that the biological solution potentially could do better than the fumigation. And after doing a lot of the soil biology uh, work on it, it was evident that the fumigation effect was pretty transient. Often less than a year, you'd see, see a rebound in the pathogens and the nematodes. Tom Forge is finding the same thing at Summerland with cherries. But the effects of the seed meal persisted for three, four years in terms of how they shifted the soil biology community. So it was more less about killing everything and more about changing the food source and then changing the whole dynamics of that community that persisted much longer. What hasn't been done, and, and, and I think there's some uh, effort to, to address this right now, is uh, what if we fumigate and add amendments? Can we kind of overcome that short-term effect, which there's some benefit. The fumigation often did better right away in that first season but it didn't last. So what if we combine some of these things? That, that's a question that's out there uh, still to be looked at. So I would say the seed meal is definitely something that shows a lot of uh, potential. Another technique that was tried was soil, uh, anaerobic soil disinfestation that was first pioneered in more so in strawberries in California and now is being used in other perennials. A little more complicated, I would say. Uh, and, and there's some large-scale trials still underway here trying to compare, actually, the seed meal to the anaerobic to uh, fumigation. So those results should be out in a year or so, I believe. Some other work that Mark did that was very interesting that, that hasn't really gone anywhere. I know a few growers have tried it. But Mark played around with cover crops. And one thing he found was that if he grew wheat as a short succession crop before replanting apples, and this was all done in the lab in the greenhouse, um, the, the roots of wheat in a particular age, so you didn't want to let the wheat go too long, it was fairly, fairly young, the, the, wheats of that, the, the roots of the wheat would have different root exudates that really changed the soil biology, and after having two or three cycles of the wheat, the biology looked as though you had never grown apples in the soil. It was really remarkable. And I've got some wonderful slides showing this that Mark gave me. But when it went to the field, he could never quite get that dramatic effect. So he kind of abandoned that. But some growers have tried taking a year out and planting wheat and whatnot. I think there's probably potential there, but it's going to take some significant research to really delve into that. That's really interesting because uh, a conversation that we've been having locally within our industry has been that, you know, with the cost of land, many growers are in a rush to get back into production as soon as possible. However, then struggle with tree growth, which often results in a delay in being able to achieve the yields that they desire in the orchard. So perhaps this idea of pre-preparation of the land and doing a cover crop is something we need to look further into. Well, that's, I mean, that's the rationale for, for the seed meal and all that. The idea is that you don't have to be out of production because people here face exactly the same issues. It's all, you know, the return on investment, how, how quickly you can do that. I had a group visiting me, I believe it was from Tajikistan in Central Asia, which is the, the genetic home of apples and pears. And 
part of the talk I gave to them was on replant and they were all looking at me funny. And I said, you know, do you have replant? And they say, we don't have replant. We just grow other crops for two or three years. And then, you know, we come back and plant the fruit trees. So <laughs> that was their <laughs> There's probably something to it. Mark did some work on fallow and did not see a, a, much of a decline in the pathogens by just having the ground fallow. So that doesn't seem to be uh, the way to go. We'd probably have to be more active and put some some crops in there to do the bioremediation. And one thing about the wheat that was so interesting was the tremendous uh, difference in response depending on the cultivar. And this is why some of these biological solutions are so much more difficult. When you've got methyl bromide or you know whatever material it is, it has to be that material. You can't sell it if it's not because it's illegal. So methyl bromide is methyl bromide, and it's going to work pretty much as predicted most of the time. It's very, very consistent relative to a lot of these biological solutions where you say, oh, just plant wheat before trees. Well, turns out the type of wheat matters. When you plant it probably matters. How long you grow it matters. Da, 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 da. It's all much, much more complicated. And that's probably why we see, you know, some things work here, some things don't work there. It's just sorting out these bio the subtleties of these biological solutions is much, much more challenging. That's so true. Our local experience with doing soil bioassays uh, prior to replanting has certainly shown a wide range of responses to, you know, both fertilizers that we've applied to biologicals we've applied. And uh, yeah, I think you're right. There's a, a huge amount of complexity there. Yeah. The, the, the assays that seem to have worked well here are the, the seedling assays. I don't know if you've tried those, but where you can take uh, Mark kind of came up with a nice system. They've got these little grow tubes. You take your soil from the replant, half of it you pasteurize at a certain temperature to, to kill most of the pathogens, but not wipe out everything. I think, I don't know what the temperature is, 140 or 160. And so then you put the soil pasteurized versus non-pasteurized. You plant your, your apple seed in them and you let it grow up a certain amount of time. And then you can kind of see, is there a response to pasteurization? of a certain percent. If you're over the certain percent, I can't remember if you used to say 20 or 30 percent better, then you're probably um, in, in the replant problem zone. If you're not, you're probably not that susceptible to it. Yeah, I think we're doing something quite similar here, which has been quite helpful just to give growers an indication as to what direction to go with treatment, pre-treatment of the soil before planting. Um, that's, it's interesting. So. One of the the things that we tried this year in doing some replanting with cherries was oilseed radish. And I, I wonder if that crop operates a little bit differently, I, um, if it is suppressive like the brassica seed meal, or if it's more so that the, the actual great long taproot on it is breaking up the soil. Have you worked with that at all? I have not. I know a couple of growers who have put it in the orchard specifically to help. <laughs> open up the soil and improve structure, but uh, I don't think they were looking at it for the, the replant kind of situation. No. What about this, like disease suppressive compost, um, David? That's sometimes something that's been bantered around as well. What would, what would a disease suppressive compost be, be or be used for? 
Hmm. That, that's a tough question. Compost, you know, has been very effective for Phytophthora, for example, and some damping off Pythium in, in a lot of potted soil work. Uh, Harry Hoytink out of Ohio State pioneered a lot of that work and got pretty darn consistent results. But it seems like when we go to the field, it changes. It's not, there's other, too many other things going on or the rates have to be so high you can't do it. But, you know, coming up with this idea of designer composts to be suppressive to specific pathogens or pathogen complexes is something that's been kind of bandied about. I don't know how much progress has been made on that to where we can really dial it in. Obviously, our technical ability to understand what's in the compost has improved uh, from a biological standpoint. But particularly because replant is a complex, it's not one organism, I think it might be kind of tough to design something that's going to be that broad spectrum. Yeah, definitely. Um, the other question that has really come up from growers recently, too, is there's a number of uh, packaged or, or sort of retailed um, mycorrhizal products. Where does that fit into this discussion around replant and soil biology? Well, that's a good question. I, the more I read, the more I'm convinced that mycorrhizae, mycorrhizae are incredibly important, and we really have not paid much attention to them. So I think the idea of trying to get a good mycorrhizal colonization makes sense. Does it play a role in replant? I don't know. I really don't. It probably plays a role in overall orchard health over the long term. But yeah, right in that early stage, hard to say. You know, what's already in the soil? How much is being colonized anyway? We just don't have much of a feeling for that, I would say. Yeah, it's definitely something that I've been seeing more um more companies bringing mycorrhizal products to market that really unsure as an agronomist how to recommend them or what's a good fit for them. Yeah, you have to wonder, will they establish in that soil with that crop? Because a lot of them are fairly specific. So that's that's the danger of, of relying on imported products like that that have been, been tested in your specific setting. You just, you don't know. Yeah. When you think about replant uh, disease and growers moving, you know, moving into a replant situation, what would you say are sort of the top things that growers can do to ensure success in terms of managing their soil and managing the young trees? Well, one of the simplest things that I've seen, and again, it's based on Mark Mazzola's work, replants pretty spatial. and particularly as we've got more of our roots in a confined area, if you simply move your tree row to the middle of the former alley, you essentially eliminate the replant problem. It's, that is, if your row spacing is the same. So it comes down to uh, you know, factors of orchard, orchard design coming into play there. But that, that physical relocation is actually a pretty darn good strategy. That's one thing I would say. Um, other than that, you know, can overall, quote, soil health by boosting organic matter and microbial activity make much of a difference? They probably don't hurt, but, you know, depending on the pathogen levels, I'm not sure it's going to be enough to overcome them. One kind of crazy idea that I've had, and I've actually discussed this with Mark, we've never tried it. What if 
we could get something like the wheat cover crop idea to work in the field, could a person come in in the last two years of the orchard life and plant wheat in the tree row and have it bioremediate the soil in place? I mean, that's a crazy idea, but it's not, you know, it's, it's possible. You could make something like that work, but it, it hasn't been delved into. But, you know, that, that would be a great strategy if one could come up with the right mix. Yeah, that's really interesting. What, um, David, what does a, a soil test tell growers about their soil health or their nutrient availability? Because we always talk about soil tests, you know, soil tests before you replant. Get an idea of what nutrients are available in your soil. What does it actually tell us? Well, a lot of the growers I talk to will say it doesn't tell us much. They're really frustrated <laughs> with the lack of correlation between soil tests and tree performance. They'll get the same soil test for two different blocks. One block goes great, the other is terrible. And this is there's been a lot of experience and a lot of hand-wringing about this issue for years and years. So I think understanding what parts of soil testing are more helpful and more reliable, uh, it's not something I'm necessarily an expert on. Things like pH, I mean, pH is a master variable. So knowing what that looks like going in, if you're going to replant, that's something you want to probably address with liming or a practice like that, if that's your issue, or, or something to acidify the soil if you've got a high pH. That's the time to do it. Try to incorporate it, get it mixed throughout the root zone more, and start off with a good pH because pH affects so many other things. That's a really big one to take care of. Phosphorus could be another one. It's much harder to d deal with phosphorus deeper in the soil. Um, after planting, and, and so if you're deficient in phosphorus, it makes sense to try to get some of that down in the soil. Uh, the chemical soil test won't tell you about compaction, so you, you'd want to look at compaction. It's a different test prior to replanting, and you know, do you need to do the deep ripping to try to open up where the, the soil's been compacted by years of traffic, tractor traffic or whatever. So some of those things are, can be tested, and, and we know pretty clearly what's good or not so desirable, and the best time to do it is before you plant the trees. That's great. I think those are all really good tips um, because, as you mentioned, certainly being able to incorporate the types of nutrients that you need to have them in the root zone is so much more efficient before you put trees in than trying to come back after the fact to top dress. Yep. Yeah. Um, David, I wondered, too, if I could ask you a little bit about biochar. What is biochar? A lot of organic growers are, are asking about it. Biochar is kind of like compost. <laughs> Depends on what it's made of and how it's made. So, you know, you can look at two different composts and they can be very, very different in their and what they come from, what the composition of the final product is, what the biological impacts are going to be, but we still just call them compost. Biochar is kind of the same deal. It's heavily influenced by the feedstock, and feedstocks are typically going to be uh, woody materials of some sort, woody or, or like straw, those sort of more high-carbon materials. And biochar goes through a process of heating in a low-oxygen environment which rather than having full combustion, which is what normally would happen, 
you char this material, you drive off a number of volatile chemicals, and you chemically change the remaining material, so it's heading towards being more like charcoal. And that charcoal has a number of properties that are influenced by both the feedstock and, and the process. The process has to do with temperature, pressure of the system, so you can do it under varying pressures in the chamber, and then the time factor, all, all those are variables. Um, partly that's driven by what's the goal of the process. In some cases, biochar is a byproduct of creating biogas um, or bio-oil. So this is all part of the, in a sense, a lot of interest around the renewable energy. Can we take biomass, you know, forest debris that's not going to be used uh, or from logging companies where all the material is sitting that, all that woody, woody bark material and whatnot, and, and find some more beneficial use for it. The idea has been, can we convert it into fuel? Well, when you make the fuel through these pyrolysis systems, that's the technical term, you'll often get other byproducts, tar or char, and depending on the process that you use. On the flip side, there's some people who want to make biochar, and then these other products might be the byproducts, and bi biochar is the main product. So you're going to vary your process depending on what your product orientation is, and then that's going to change the composition of the biochar. Really interesting. So how can biochar be applied to orchards? What are the benefits that it would have on soil and the crop? I have not personally used it in orchards, so I, I can't say. I was involved in a, a fairly large project looking at it more in dryland systems and some in irrigated row crops. And we didn't see really big effects in terms of plant growth. We did see some effects of nitrogen tie-up, which is well-documented. Some of these biochars are very, because of their, their carbon composition, they will outcompete the microbes for nitrogen. So you can get tie-up. So that's a negative that you have to watch out for. It does, a lot of the biochars are um, higher pH. So on acidic soils, they do have a liming influence. There's some definite benefit there, depending on your soil situation. Um, depending on how it's made, its nitrogen content can be pretty low. A lot of the nitrogen is often lost. But one of the things that people are interested in is both its exchange complex, so its ability to hold nutrients, kind of add to the cation and anion exchange in the soil, and its potential as a habitat for microorganisms because of all the interesting pore structure, the physical structure of it. So those, those are things that people are often looking at to get benefit from. Biochar is, it, it's maybe, I'm not going to say a fad at the moment, maybe it's been overhyped, partly as a solution to global warming because we can tie up all this carbon. So biochar, by, by its physical and chemical nature, is pretty stable in soil. That's the whole point. Is it's, it's a carbon that's going to stick around a long time. And when you're trying to get a very stable carbon, then you don't have a very active carbon. So you can't have it exactly both ways. And I think some people are misled to think that it can bring both benefits. But the, a lot of the interest stemmed from some work done by Johannes Lehmann out of Cornell, 
who studied, intensively studied the agriculture along the Amazon River and some of the Amazon basins where they found these soils called terra preta or black earth Amazonian soils. And it turns out that those were formed by charring the forest vegetation when they did their slash and burn systems that apparently there was some real intentionality to it at one point, along with the fact that they had all the debris from their villages going out onto these soils as well. So the exact evolution of those terra preta soils, I don't, I don't think is completely understood. And we've taken the idea that these soils that probably formed over hundreds or thousands of years by some combination of organic material and charring and da-di-da-di-da, which are incredibly, they're like 10 to 20 to 50 times as productive as the soil just outside that zone. It's unbelievable. They've transformed the soil. But we think that we can just take this biochar from this paralysis process and dump it on soil and have the same effect. And I question that. Well, no, that's a, that's a great explanation. Thank you. And, and I'm glad that you were able to describe both the benefits as well as the potential drawbacks, because I think as, as we've discussed so much throughout our conversation here on soil biology, that we can do one thing, but certainly may get a variety of reactions from it. And I appreciate you being able to, to describe both of those uh, aspects of biochar. I'd like to just probably wrap up here, David, um, with asking you a little bit about um, what you see as current opportunities for organic tree fruit production. I know you're recently retired, but obviously still very active in, in the industry. And where do you see the organic tree fruit industry going in Washington State and, and globally? Well, and it- you know, given that we, we produce about 90% of the organic apples, pears, and cherries in the U.S., we, we are that sector. There are international data. The U.S. data aren't, aren't the greatest. They're pretty tough. I've tried to track those where I can, but I've worked with the, the folks out of Europe who do the uh, world of organic agriculture, so I incorporate their data every year, too. And we saw some interesting distortions there. They made a, a policy choice a number of years ago to try to become more self-sufficient in organic apples. Producing organic apples in scab-ridden places is really tough, as you know, and that's most of Europe. It's a really difficult situation, but they've invested in a huge amount of work in scab-resistant varieties and all sorts of things, and they've expanded to the point where they're pretty darn close most years to being self-sufficient. We used to ship organic apples to Europe. We haven't for decades, except for two years ago when their crop froze out. So they've in large part succeeded. They've also had a lot of European Union encouragement through subsidies and other things. And that showed up pretty dramatically in their statistics, in the global statistics, uh, when they had a subsidy for converting land to organic, but it wasn't tied to producing organic food. So Poland, which is actually, the, I think, the largest apple producer in Europe, had all of a sudden it had more organic apple acres than anywhere. It was crazy. I actually went to Poland in 2015, and they told me it was a joke. It was all about subsidies. So we saw this huge spike 
in acres and almost zero change in production. And so you have to be sensitive to some of those anomalies when you're looking at these numbers. Absolutely. Well, it sounds like we could have a whole other conversation about the the current global situation in organic production in tree fruits. Thank you for that. That sounds it is interesting. Yeah. Uh, I, I yeah. I, I, would, I would just say that I think finding that supply demand balance is re- really important because there's no question prices have come down as supply is really ramped up, but at the same time. How do we find that spot where we we not only improve organic yields and efficiencies, but we're not immune to those forces. And so I think we have to do that such that organic growers can survive as prices come down. But the market is going to expand because all the surveys of consumer demand have different uh breakouts where often people will say, well, I'd buy organic if it was no more than 20% more than conventional or 25% more. There's there's kind of a sweet spot in there where I think we have a huge increase in the audience for these products if we can kind of fall in that price difference. And we've got stores like Costco here in, in the U.S. that have made decisions where they can get a product like a Gala Apple year-round at the quantity and quality they want the pricing they feel they need, uh, that's all they sell. They don't sell conventional apples. When you go into Costco and you want a gala, it's going to be organic. And just think about the potential market that's opening up if part of the goal is to get organic in more people's diet. It's tremendous. So I think it's going to be an interesting tension. You know, if the whole world is organic, there's no organic price premium. So how do you work that one out? That's an interesting dilemma. Yeah, that sure is. It's absolutely important to the growers to have that yield efficiency, also ensuring quality. However, as as you say, we need to have that premium in order to justify some of the cost of production on the organic side. So very interesting dilemma. One more comment. We're we're right now about 20% of our apple acres in Washington State are organic, certified organic, which is unbelievable for you know a major commodity like that. And so, you know, the question is, how much bigger can that get? Twenty percent is really big. Uh, about five percent of the food dollars in the U.S. go to organic. Produce is a little higher, but for you know something like apples to be there, I don't know how much what other crops are quite at that level. So I think we have to be careful going forward. And I keep saying this, we know kind of what the demand curve looks like. It's really been steady. Let's only expand at that rate. But I've yet to talk anyone into that at an industry-wide basis. Yeah, I can see that one being the challenge. But thank you for that insight. I, I do think that's really interesting. David, thank you so much for joining me today. It was a wonderful conversation about uh, soil biology, orchard floor management, replant disease. We covered a lot of topics. And I just want to say how much I appreciate uh, the information as well as uh, the experience that you've shared with us today and also with the organic uh, industry. We've learned a lot from your work over the years. So thank you for joining us. I do hope we'll have the opportunity to talk again. Hey, well, I hope that all works. It was fun. Thanks, Molly. All right, that's it for now. Special thanks for our podcast music goes out to Matt Eckel, a jazz flutist and father of organic rancher, Avin Banwell. 
you can search for Matt's music online. Eckel is spelled E-A-K-L-E. I also want to thank all of the guest interviewers you'll be hearing in this series as we re-release it over the next few months. Gavin Wright, Molly Thurston, Abra Bryn, Tristan Banwell, and Emma Holmes. Thanks to all of you for your contributions to the show. Okay, everyone, I hope you enjoyed what you just heard. I'm Jordan Marr, and I will talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.